congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes life just seems to be a perfect storm. Wave after wave hits us, and sometimes it feels that we've hardly got our breath, and the next one's upon us. And sometimes life can seem rather overwhelming with all of the challenges that it brings, all of the hardships, all of the afflictions that we need to go through. How do we deal with the, the chaos and the turbulence of life? There are forces and powers which are beyond our control. There, there's disease which doesn't ask us for permission, but ravages our bodies. There are strong forces of evil which break apart relationships and marriages and, and families. And sometimes it just seems all so out of control. What can we do? There are social forces which seem to be remaking the culture and the society in which we live at a, at a breathtaking pace. And we just wonder, where are things going? And what are things going to be like for my children and grandchildren? What are they going to be like for me in just a few years' time? Forces which just this year came very close to trying to shut down Christian education and Christian schools. There are economic forces the ups and downs of the market and world oil prices and suddenly things that were way up there are way down there. And there are jobs that are lost and bills to be paid and financial challenges to be dealt with. Well, things have always been that way since the fall. You read history, you read texts from 2,000, 3,000 years ago, and people are, are seeing the same things. Man, life is hard. Life is getting worse. What's the world coming to? What's with the youth of today? Why all these changes? What's the world going to be like for my grandchildren? It's always been like that. And it will be to God sets all things right. Now, how do we deal with it? How do we live in a turbulent and chaotic world? How do we deal with it? Well, those who do not know God have their ways to try and deal with it. Way back in the ancient Near East at the time when David wrote this psalm, the peoples around who did not know God, what they would do with all these forces and powers which were in conflict and, and, and tossing and, and turning things around in human life, what they would do is they would personalize them. They, were, they would make make gods out of them. And then those gods they would try to make friends with. They would, they would feed them with food and they would give them money and they would give them service and, and worship and hope to somehow appease these forces of nature which they divinize. And in particular, it was one set of gods that they really looked at closely because they had to do with the yearly agricultural cycle and whether they were going to have food and a good harvest or not. There was the one God who was called Yam, Y-A-M, Yam or Yam. He was the God of chaos and the turbulent uh, roaring of the sea. And then there was Baal. Baal was the God of fertility. He was the one you wanted on your side. 
And every year, Baal and Yom would fight with each other. And, and finally, Baal would be victorious. And then the sun would come out, and the crops would grow, and there would be a great harvest. There would be prosperity, and there would be fertility. Now, scholars say that this is a natural way in which man evolved. He came to the point in his evolution where he he invented religion. He invented gods to try and deal with the turbulence and the chaos of life in this fallen world. Well, it's true that man invented gods, but, but the Bible tells us that this is not evolution. It's not development. It is devolution. It's regression. It's going back. We read Romans chapter 1, a part of it. And, and the apostle makes it very clear that God created man to know God rightly. But what man, what sinful and fallen and rebellious man does is he, he represses the knowledge of the invisible attributes of God clearly revealed in creation. And instead of worshiping the creator, fallen, sinful, rebellious man worships the creature, the forces of nature. And what does that lead to? Well, you see that at the end of Romans chapter 1, that leads to darkness, darkness of the mind, which leads to perversity in every aspect of human life. In Psalm 29, the scripture reveals to us the truth. The truth is this, that only God the Father is Sovereign. Only the Creator is sovereign. Only He ought to be worshipped. Every power, every force, everything that comes, comes into our lives and tries to turn it upside down, those things are all under His sovereign control. Now, the, the scholars look at Psalm 29, and they see uh, repeated references to, to the voice of the Lord, or it can also mean the, the sound of the Lord, or the, the noise of the Lord. Uh, that he's a God of glory, that he thunders. And they see a lot of things in this psalm which remind them of ancient texts about Baal. Baal was known, for instance, as the God of seven thunders. And so what unbelieving scholars do is they say, well, look at this. The, the Jews, you know, David, I guess he didn't have a lot of time to meet his deadline. He grabbed a poem or a hymn from the, from, the, from the pagan peoples around, and he just switched Baal out and put in the word Yahweh instead. So we just borrowed pagan poetry. Well, that's not what's happening here at all. David's deliberately calling attention to the fact that what the unbelievers attribute to their fake little gods is actually the sovereign acting of the only true God in time, in space, and in history. If you read through the psalm, you'll see that 18 times there's the word Lord in all capital letters, and you know very well that Lord in all capital letters tells us that in the Hebrew, the word is Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name of God, the one who is all-powerful, almighty, all-sovereign, in control of everything. He's the one who loves us. And relates to us and covenants with us in, in Christ. 18 times Yahweh. There are only, I think, 89 words in the Hebrew text. 
and 18 of them are the word Yahweh. David's making a point here. So how does the psalm begin? It gives glory to the power of God. Total sovereignty belongs to him. All powers on earth and heaven must bow the knee, for they are derived. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, says, says David. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, you heavenly beings. And in, in the Hebrew, heavenly beings is sons of God. And when the Bible talks about sons of God, it can mean a bunch of things. But in, in, the, in the Psalms and in the Old Testament, it often refers to, to the great and powerful, mighty kings amongst humans. It can also refer to mighty spiritual forces, angels, and, and even demons, and, and, or, or those who are on the side of the devil. Forces in creation which the pagans considered gods. What David is saying is this, anything and anyone which thinks that they have some kind of power, you need to come and you need to ascribe to the Lord alone glory and strength. Verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord. And the word worship here means fall down on your face. Fall down on your face in front of him. David's saying that anyone and anything which considers himself or itself powerful in any way must recognize that to him belongs the power and the glory and to him alone. And so that must drive even the greatest to worship, to worship in the splendor of holiness. You see that at the end of verse 2 there, the splendor of holiness. The Hebrew here can also be translated in holy garments, in holy attire. Maybe you have that footnote in your Bible. What is David saying? He's saying, listen, you powerful, you sons of God, you heavenly beings, you high and mighty, you great powerful forces, when you come and fall down your face, come dressed for the occasion. Don't come dressed in the trappings of your own power and your own glory, but come in the splendor of holiness. Come dressed to worship. Come dressed to bow the knee and to confess with your tongue that he is king of kings and that he is Lord of lords. Well, that's a great tip, isn't it, for us every week when we come to worship? How should we be dressed? You know, sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about the specifics of what articles of clothing and what type and, and color and, and texture they should have, but, but the Bible, especially in the New Testament, gives us the principles. And here the principle is this, when we come to worship God, we don't dress to impress. We don't dress to show everybody else what a great fashion taste we have. We don't dress to draw attention to us and to our glory and to our fine taste or to our wealth or to our good looks or to whatever we want to tell other people about us. But when we get ready to come to God's presence, the way we dress reflects the attitude of our heart. 
that we come to fall down and to worship. That's the important thing. And then we get, as we get into the the body of the psalm here in verse 3 and following, we get seven times that phrase, the voice of the Lord. Voice of the Lord in the Hebrew, as you know already from back in Genesis, it means that the voice, but it can also mean that the sound of the Lord. So if the Lord thunders, that's the voice of the Lord as well. Seven times, the number of fullness, all the power of creation is in his hands. And here's the thing, Baal was known as the God of seven thunders. And when David deliberately uses seven times the phrase, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, David's saying, Baal is nothing, and God is everything. And then in verse 3 and following, we have a storm. That's what's happening in this psalm. We have a storm which begins out in the, the Mediterranean and then moves onto land and over the mountains and then into the desert. It's a description of a storm. Now, David... David was in tune with creation. He spent a lot of time outside, especially when he was running away from Saul. He wasn't living in palaces. He was living out in the field. Today, we often hide from the power of God in creation. It's easy to forget God in our artificial and and climate-controlled environments, and it's even easier to forget God when we're lost in the pixelated world of our own computer-generated reality, virtual reality. Who is powerful? Who can do anything in virtual reality? Who is great? Who is mighty? Who is in control? When you're in Minecraft for two hours and you're making and remaking worlds, you're the God. You're the one that's in control. There's a reason why The enemy of our souls loves it when we forget real things and we dedicate ourselves to pixels. David goes out. You remember Psalm 8. David goes out and he looks at the stars. And he's just blown away by the glory and the grandeur. And he feels really small and he just breaks out into worship of God. That's what happens when you come into contact with real things. You see the fingerprints of God in creation. You see his power and majesty displayed in the things that he has made. It drives you to worship. And so, brothers and sisters, what we need to do is we need to wean our children off the devices and get them out there into the real world. We need to teach our children to see creation because the more they look at creation, the more they study it, the more they, they observe it, the more they will be driven to glorify the Creator. And that's a good thing. So in Psalm 29 here, we, we have the storm, the power of a storm. Think about it. Uh, uh, when you're at sea, or forget the sea for a moment, think about the city. When there's a snowstorm and snow falls, then... It can stop the city. Everything can grind to a halt. Just a little bit of snow that God sprinkles on a city. When you're out sea and and the storm is whipping up the waves to 10 stories high, you're just absolutely helpless in the face of such power. 
If you think about a tornado, just one tornado has the energy in it of 10,000 nuclear bombs of the size that they dropped on Hiroshima. 10,000 nuclear bombs, that much energy in one tornado. There's a lot of power in the storm. And so the storm starts in the Mediterranean Sea, and and the sea in the Scriptures uh, describes not just water, but it's a metaphor in the Scriptures as well. The sea is used in the Old and New Testament to to describe the the roiling, uh, chaotic, turbulent powers that threaten human life. Not just the powers of nature, but also the powers of economy and and politics and, and wars and all other kinds of things. What does Psalm 65 verse 7 say? If you just flip in your Bible very quickly to 65 7, you'll see the connection made between the, the, the sea and the turbulence of the nations. It speaks about God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. In Hebrew. Poetry says one line, and then it says another line, which is parallel. So it's paralleling here the roaring and turbulent waves with the tumult of the peoples. So there's God. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is of the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. And what is David saying? He's saying it's not that fake God, Yum, but it is Yahweh who's in charge over the land and over the sea. It is he who thunders, not Baal. Now, when a thunderclap happens very close, I think even the bravest guy here kind of jumps. It's, 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 a, it's a dreadful thing. It's a powerful thing. It strikes fear when there's a really, really strong thunderclap and lightning strikes close by. And David's reminding us who's making the noise. I once counseled a family in Recife that had spent the night in terror because local gangsters were on their roof for a long period during the night threatening to break in. Now, as Canadians, we're like, well, what are you talking about breaking in through the roof? But make a long story short, in Brazil, you can take aside the roof tiles and you can come in through the roof and through the ceiling and easily break into the houses, especially of the poor. And these kind of gangsters breaking in would mean bad things. It could mean uh, violence, and it could mean uh, rape and, and even death. So they were in terror. When you hear something on the roof, you're afraid what's happening. But as we discussed things together, and we talked about this fact, that if you hear someone on the roof and you wonder who it is, and you're afraid, and then your mother says to you, it's daddy, daddy's climbed up onto the roof to fix something, it's your father, then suddenly that noise up there is not frightening anymore, because you know who it is, and you know that he wishes you well, and that he loves you, and that he protects you. That's what David's doing in this psalm, he's saying, listen, don't be afraid of the storm, don't be afraid of the noise, don't be afraid of the lightning, because who's on the roof, who's up there? It's your God. It's your Father. Yes, he's powerful, verse 4. He's full of majesty. But that should not evoke fear from you. 
but rather joyful worship. And then in verse 5, the, the storm makes landfall, passes the coast, enters into the forest of Lebanon, and it just snaps these cedars like matchsticks. Now, that's, that's impressive. The cedars of Lebanon were symbols for, for power and for majesty and for solidity and for stability. They were used in, in temples and in, in king's palaces. But the word of the Lord, the storm of the Lord, the voice of the Lord just breaks them like matchsticks. And it keeps going, verse 6, up through the forest, up into the mountains. Lebanon skips like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. Now, why would David mention Syrian? Well, Syrian is the mountain which we know more familiar, uh, with more familiarity as Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, which is mentioned in, in the Psalms as well, uh, it was up in the north of Israel, the south of Lebanon, still is there, and so high that it often had snow on the top, so then cooling breezes would come down from Hermon, and they would cool Jerusalem at certain times of the day. It was also known as Syrian, this mountain. And it just happened to be in the myths of the Baal worshippers, it happened to be the mountain where Baal lived, where Baal had his temple. So what is David saying? David's saying, hey, look what's happening here. See the power of God? He's taken the home of Baal, your puny little fake God, and he's shaking it around like a toy. He's making it jump up and down. So much for your God of seven thunders. And then we get to verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. He flashes forth flames of, of fire. The poetry in this section of the psalm is really neat because the, the, the poet, David, he uses sounds to kind of communicate the lightning happening. There are a lot of words that begin with the sound, and they come all in a row. So you hear the of lightning as you read the psalm, although you have to read it in Hebrew to get that, uh, that effect. When lightning hits the ground, the ground trembles. There's the energy, enough energy to, to light billions of light bulbs just in one lightning strike. There's the power of Yahweh. And then in verse 8, it's gone over the mountains and into the wilderness, which also trembles. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Well, that's the description of the storm. What's the reaction? Well, the creation trembles and shakes. The ground shakes. The trees fall down and worship. They're broken in pieces. Even the animals react. The, 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 the deer give birth. Now, I tried to research just as much as I could, but... It seems to me that perhaps when a storm's coming, some wild animals will anticipate giving birth because, of, because of they, can, they can sense the storm coming. could mean that. But the Hebrew, Hebrew is really hard to translate on a good day, but, but when you're translating Hebrew poetry, it's even harder because Hebrew just uses consonants. It doesn't use the vowels. And so sometimes you can have the same consonants and they can be, they can be vocalized in different ways. And so some of you, for instance, that have an NIV, you will see that it talks about, in verse 9 there, the voice of the Lord uh, twists the oaks or something like that, which is kind of different, isn't it? 
But here's the point. Creation reacts. Creation trembles. Creation prostrates itself. But but who doesn't react? What's missing here? What's missing here is, is a human reaction. There's silence from the humans. They're mute with terror. Adam and Eve ran from the sound of the voice of God in the garden. And that's what happens as God thunders in the storm. Human beings are mute with terror. There's one exception. And that's at the end of verse 9. Only in his temple does someone say something. In his temple all cry glory. Now why is that? Why just in the temple? Well, we know from Malachi chapter 2 verse 7 what you can find in the temple. What does Malachi say? For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In the temple we have special revelation. Not just the raw power of God of creation, which leaves sinners in terror, but with no excuse. But in the temple, we have the voice of God, which speaks words of life and grace and comfort. And that's where we learn to put things into perspective. It is through the temple and through the instruction of the word that we learn the content of verse 10. That it is Yahweh who sits enthroned over the flood as king forever. There's another dig at Baal, by the way. Remember, Baal had to fight with Yom every year and see who would come out on top. And so it was always back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. David says, no, it's not like that at all. God is king, and he's king always, all year round, every day, all year, forever. There's no perpetual tug of war between competing so-called gods or forces of nature. There's no cycle. Yahweh, the one who has covenanted with us, is in charge. And he is enthroned over what? Look at verse 10. He's enthroned over the flood. Now, when the Bible talks about floods, it it normally uses another word. The word that David uses here is a really special word for flood, and it's only used to describe the biggest flood that ever happened, Noah's flood, the flood which destroyed the entire world which undid, to a large extent, the work of creation to renew it all over again. It's that great and mighty, worst imaginable flood that David can think of that he says God is sovereign over. And if he's sovereign over the biggest ones, then he's sovereign over the little ones as well. And then we get to verse 11. God gives strength. To his people. He, he shows strength to the wicked, but he gives strength to his people. He blesses them with peace. In the, in the Baal myths, Baal, when he finishes fighting with Yam, then he has to go off and ask other gods to fill the land with peace and love. He can't do it by himself. But in the real world, we're not subject to a bunch of flawed gods who are arguing and fighting and trying to cooperate imperfectly. In the real world, we live in a creation which has a covenant God sovereign over all the chaos. Yahweh is in control, 
the Lord is sovereign, and this is consolation, this is comfort, this is peace for his people. Now, Israel had to learn that lesson. For centuries, Israel tried to limp along between two opinions. They would serve God, serve the idols as well. A lot of Baal worship happened in Israel, especially before the exile. But in the exile, they learned the lesson. And when they came back from the exile, they hated idolatry. They hated the high places. They hated the false gods and the idols. And they loved the temple. They love the house of God. That's where the answers are. That's where our refuge is. That's where we find peace. That's where we find comfort. And so it was after the exile that our Psalter, the book of Psalms, was organized in the way we have it today. And it's interesting and noteworthy that Psalm 29 is the last in a group of Psalms between Psalm 23 and Psalm 29, which focus on the house of the Lord. Just even the way the salt is put together tells us something. This is where you go for the answers. This is where you go to find shelter. This is where you go to find something to, that is a rock that can anchor you in a turbulent and chaotic world. Well, the question to you tonight is this. Where are you looking Where are you seeking comfort and peace in a chaotic world? Where are you running to deal with life's problems and fears and pain? You know, we we have our idols too. I, I don't think anybody in the church here has little statues at home that we fall down in front of. But we all have our idols, don't we? The things that we we cling to for hope. We sacrifice our kids on the altar of the God of success. Sacrifice our marriage relationships often to the God of work and getting ahead and money. There's the little idol of comfort food when we're feeling miserable. Reach out for one more bar of chocolate, one more bag of chips. We get hooked on the dopamine shots from social media, all those little red numbers and those likes and those love hearts. We find strength and comfort in those things. We look to the pseudo piece of of drugs and alcohol and and the pseudo pleasure of obsession with sex and pornography and, and whatever idol it is that we're looking to. All they can do is ensnare us and enslave us and and draw us away from from the real thing. And they will always, always deceive us and disappoint us. What the scripture teaches us from cover to cover is this. It is all or it's nothing. You can't have one foot in the church and one in the world. You can't look to God, but also cover your bases and look to other things, having something else or someone else in which we look for comfort and salvation. Scripture teaches us that we need to find peace and comfort in the presence of God. We need to seek our welfare and salvation in God alone, in God as he is near to us, in God as he is with us, in God Emmanuel, You know, if David knew that, we know it even better, don't we? Because we know him even better than the psalmist knew him. We know that it's in Christ alone. 
That's who the psalmist is pointing to. And there's a little, there's a little hint of that. If you look carefully, see the end of verse 9 there? Glory. Glory. Glory to God in the highest. Look at verse 11 at the end. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Peace on earth to men in whom he has pleasure. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to God's people. Does that sound familiar? We just celebrated Christmas a few days ago. God shows his power in creation. He shows his grace and glory in his word. And he shows himself most fully in the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. The scripture says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So David says, it's in the temple that you find the answer. It's in the temple that you find the comfort. It's in the temple that you can praise God even in the storm. Because that's what God is. Where do we find God? There's no temple left, is there? Can't fly to Jerusalem. I mean, even if we did, there's no temple to visit, to be in. We need to find God in Christ. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is the temple, the temple that was destroyed and after three days was built again. But where do we find Christ? Oh, he's in heaven, isn't he? Where do we find him here on earth? Where can you find the Lord Jesus Christ? Where does he make himself known? Well, we know what the Bible teaches. He as head is in heaven, but on earth his body, the church, is. And his body, the church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you want to find the Lord Jesus Christ... The address you need to be looking for is the church of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where you meet him on this earth. And in a world full of chaos and fear and natural catastrophe and extreme climate and earthquakes and tsunamis and human catastrophes and massacres and terror and violence and death of loved ones and wars and rumors of wars and depravity and mental and physical illness and unemployment and broken relationships and dangerous and terrifyingly powerful and destructive economic and social forces, it is in the church that we find peace and stability. It is here that we find shelter from the storm. It is here that we get perspective on the chaos because it is here that we come into the very presence of God Almighty. And it is here that he teaches us the truth that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it is here that we are secure in the grace of God in Christ. And therefore, it is here that we can give glory when we see his power sovereign over the world, sovereign over history, sovereign over our little lives and our little stories, enthroned above the chaos and flood of the whole human race and the whole universe, and enthroned over the chaos and floods of our lives, our marriages, and our families, and our church. We know something 
that people outside the church do not know and don't want to know. We know who is directing the forces of nature, social and political and economic forces. We know his name. It is our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know what he's doing. He's up there in heaven. He's breaking the seals on the scroll, executing the eternal plan of God. He's on the throne. He's in charge. He's running things. He's moving history forward to his goal. And we know what his goal is. We know where it is all headed. A new world, new heavens, and a new earth where there is no more sea, no more chaos, no more catastrophes or turmoil of rebellion of the sins of the nations, no more roiling rebellion of sinners, but instead Yahweh coming for his bride. He made a covenant with her that he would never leave or forsake her. And so he's coming. He's coming for her. If we turn to Revelation 21, we'll end with a few verses there. Revelation 21, we'll just end with the last four, or the first four verses of that chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed Away. The day is coming when the entire creation will be the temple. And in that temple, we will live and declare and sing forever glory, 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 glory to God in the highest, glory to the God of the covenant, glory to God who relates to us in Christ, glory to God who by the power of the Spirit destroyed everything which has to do with sin and made all things new in Christ. In this church, we proclaim the future glory. And in this chaotic world, it is in the church that we are tasting the first fruits of the glory that dwells in us. Amidst the terrors which surround and attack us, we know the glory which comforts and consoles us and gives us peace, the peace which passes understanding. And so we cry, glory. Glory in our worship. We cry glory in all of our life. In the last hours of 2019 and in all of 2020 and in every day and year until we see him face to face. Amen.